Amen. Thank you, Miss Janice. What a blessing. Man, it's been good to be in the Lord's house today. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. As you know, this fall we've been exploring the life of David. And before we launch into Christmas full-blown and we get into Christmas messages, I thought we would do well to reach this stopping point uh, before we continue in the life of David in 2023. But I want to preach to you this uh, message today entitled, The Games That Fools Play. And it's from 1 Samuel. Actually, if you want to go ahead and turn to chapter 26 and verse 21, we're going to start off with this verse today. I'm reading from the New King James. This is Saul's epitaph. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I... I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you, my rock and my redeemer. 600,000 people visit the graveside of Elvis Presley each year at the Graceland Palace in Memphis, Tennessee. That makes Elvis's mansion one of the most popular in the United States, second only to the executive mansion, that is the White House. Amazingly, listen to this, in 2020, the Elvis brand raked in over $40 million in music and memorabilia sales. That's not too bad for a rock and roll star that's been dead since 1977. There's a mystique and an attraction about the man that many call the king of rock and roll. Over his career, listen to this, Elvis had 18 songs reach number one on the music charts. He then starred in 51 movies. He was known for his over-the-top performances and his lavish lifestyle. Listen to this, Elvis owned a fleet of cars including his trademark pink Cadillac. He had a private jet at one time, a pet chimp named Scatter, (laughs) a wardrobe of over 6,000 articles of clothing, and of course the 17,500 square foot mansion in Graceland. Not bad for a kid that came from dirt poverty in Tupelo, Mississippi. Now, Elvis' life has been compared to that of a star that burned Brightest and fastest among the pantheon of the early rock and roll icons. But toward the end of his career, Elvis became a pill addict. He passed away at just the age of 42. He was found dead in his bathroom, an apparent overdose. The coroner's report listed a cocktail of ten different drugs in his bloodstream, including morphine, codeine, and barbiturates. In fact, he kept a stash of 9,000 prescription pills on hand in case he ran out. According to one biographer, Elvis grew up as a churchgoer. His musical roots were in gospel. To those who knew him best, they said that he read his Bible regularly, and at every performance, he did two gospel songs. He may have been raised... In the church of God, but he also explored other kinds of religion later on in his life. Kabbalah, Buddhism, Taoism. 
He sometimes wore the star of David and the cross around his neck. And when questioned by that, about that by the media, he joked by saying, so that he wouldn't be kept out of heaven on a technicality. He once said to a reporter, I'm a searcher. All I want to know is the truth and experience God. Elvis is the epitome of a tragic character. He was a man who lived like a king and yet died like a fool. Like so many that we are quick to put on a pedestal, he started well, but he finished poorly. Now, it may be odd to start a sermon about Saul by looking at Elvis, but I think if you look at their lives, there's a lot in common. Both men were kings in their own rights. One the king of rock and roll, the other the king of Israel. They both began with great potential, but along the way, both of them lost their way. And both died tragically as a shell of their former glory. In fact, today I would submit to you that both of these men who lived as kings played a game that fools play. When we talk about Saul, we read his epitaph there previously. No man in Scripture ever had a brighter beginning or a sadder ending than King Saul. Saul had every opportunity to be a great leader. In fact, the Bible says that he was manly. In 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2, it says that he was a handsome young man who was head and shoulders above everybody else. If Saul were alive today, he would have been on the cover of GQ magazine. He was manly. He had a mighty anointing. The Spirit of God rested upon him as Israel's first king. And then he also had a great mentor. Samuel, the prophet, was his guide to teach him the will of the Lord. And yet, despite all this promise, all these advantages, when you study Saul's life, especially in comparison with David, here's a guy who sabotaged his career. And as we have studied David, we have also studied alongside him his mortal enemy for many years, and that is Saul. Today we're coming to a a turning point, a transition, if you will, in the life of David, where we see the demise of Saul and then the ascension of David. But Bible scholar J. Sidlow Baxter, he summed up, Saul's life this way, and this is a great summary. He wrote in his book, Mark These Men. He said, quote, Saul is one of the most striking and tragic characters in the Old Testament. In some ways he is very big, and in other ways he is very little. In some ways he is commandingly handsome, and in other ways he is decidedly ugly. All in one, he's a giant and a dwarf, a hero and a renegade, a king and a slave, a prophet and a reprobate, a man God anointed, and a man Satan possessed. It's safe to say that sometimes when you read the Bible, and you read these lives, these are complicated, messy, real people. In today's message, we're going to trace the demise of David's adversary, and we're going to notice today four fatal mistakes that Saul made that 
fit his epitaph perfectly. I have sinned and erred exceedingly. I have played the fool. The games that fools play. What was the first one that got Saul off track? It was this, number one. What I call the failure of self-determination. The failure of self-determination. Now we're going to go back in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I want you to see this with me. Now the cracks in Saul's career and his character emerged early on as he faces his first test. It's a battle against the Philistines. Notice Israel is outnumbered. 2,000 soldiers to the Philistines, 30,000 chariots. Saul's men are shaking in their sandals. Some are retreating. They're, they're running back home to mama before the battle even begins. But Saul had been given instructions by the prophet Samuel before he was to fight. Samuel told him, listen, Saul, before the battle begins, wait on me. Wait on me to get to the camp so that I may offer a sacrifice unto the Lord and thus discern what's the will of God. How should you go about and fight this battle? Notice 1 Samuel 13, look at verse 7. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 8, and he waited seven days, the appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have what church done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The first foolish move that he made was self-determination. Listen so on. Those are the kind of messages that offend people. And so what a lot of pastors will do is they'll just shy away from the topics that they know is going to step on people's toes. Nothing wrong with wanting to grow a church, but not at the expense of biblical authority. I'd rather be biblically true than politically correct. Biblical correctness over political correctness... And friend, that's uh, one of the big problems in the church today. Uh, we have too many pastors trying to win friends and make influence and meet the bottom line of the budget rather than opening up the Word of God and being true to what the Word of God says. Nothing wrong with wanting to grow a church, but you better do it in the right way. Nothing wrong with wanting to do the will of God, but you have to do it the way that God says you got to do it. Every Christian 
no doubt should pursue a life of holiness, a life of purity. That's what we're commanded to do. But if you become legalistic in doing that and you invent a bunch of man-made rules and you become a Pharisee, then friend, you're doing it wrong. Your motive may be right, but the way in which you are doing it is wrong and actually you're pushing people away from Jesus rather than bringing them to Jesus. Adrian Rogers said it like this. He says, the devil, if he cannot keep you from doing a wrong thing, he'll try to get you to do a right thing in the wrong way. Saul was scheming. And friend, I can tell you, when you resort to scheming, you lose the very blessing that you're trying to grab hold of. Proverbs 12 and 15 said it this way, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. What Saul thought was the right thing to do was the wrong way to do it. That's the failure of self-determination. Then the next mistake that he made along the way, notice this, the folly of sinful disobedience. The folly of sinful disobedience. We'll fast forward to chapter 15. So go ahead and flip forward to 1 Samuel 15 and notice this. There's another major breaking point that happened in Saul's life. And it happens when he disobeys a direct order of God. He's in another battle situation. This time he's against the Amalekites. And Saul is given orders by Samuel. Samuel tells him, listen, here's what God wants you to do in this battle. Go scorched earth. Leave no prisoners behind. Saul, kill every soldier. Kill the animals. Don't leave the king alive. you got to take them all out. I mean, this was scorched earth warfare. Well, Saul ends up doing the job only halfway. And when Samuel arrives, he notices that the king of the Amalekites, a man named Agag, is still alive. And Saul has decided that he's going to keep the animals for himself. Notice what happens, 1 Samuel 15, drop down to verse 13. The Bible says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, which was a lie. Verse 14, And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul, you're telling me one thing. But when I hear the crying of the animals, you hadn't done the first thing that God told you to do. Go on to verse 22. Notice this exchange. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, as presumption as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then drop down to verse 27. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better then you, speaking of David, verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie to, or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. My, my. The second game that Saul played was that of a fool and that of sinful disobedience. 
This was actually the final and the fatal straw that broke Saul's kingdom. Notice here that Samuel pronounced God's rejection and judgment upon Saul. In fact, if you keep reading and you go into the very next chapter, chapter 16, this is the point where David is then anointed king. He's brought in from the shepherd's field. And at that moment, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and it went and it rested upon David. And from that moment on, without the Spirit of God keeping Saul in check, here's a man that's going to spiral out of control. He's going to become violent. He's going to become neurotic. He's going to become paranoid. What a picture of you and me when we don't surrender and submit to the will of God and the Spirit of God. We get a little sideways, don't we? But notice the key here to this whole passage is obedience. Does God prefer the sacrifice of rams over simple obedience? The prophet asked the king. Listen, friend, obedience to God is never general. It's always specific. If Saul could not be trusted to carry out a simple order, then how could he be an effective leader? And if, friend, listen to me, if you're not willing to obey God, then there's somebody who will, and the blessing that God may have had for you, God will gladly give to somebody else who will obey the will of God. Just as the blessing and the anointing went from Saul to David. So Saul forfeited his kingdom. And i got to ask you this question today as you apply it to yourself. What blessings have you forfeited? In what ways have you only been halfway obedient? What things has been ripped away from you because you snubbed your nose up and said, I'm not going to do it that way. I'll do it my way, but I won't do it God's way. How foolish. How, how stupid can we be sometimes in our flesh when we read the black and white words of God and it's so clear and we say, yeah, I don't think so. I'm going to do it my way, God. Not your way. Some of you are wondering today, why hadn't things changed in my life? Some of you are wondering, why can't I feel the presence and the joy of the Lord in my life today? Why is there no peace? Why am I not growing spiritually? Why is it that when I open the Bible, it's just a jumble of words? May I suggest an answer to that? Perhaps you have not obeyed the Lord in a very simple way. I don't know what he's asked you to do, but I believe the Spirit of God right now is revealing it to you in your heart of hearts. In what way have you been halfway obedient to God? And you wonder, why hasn't things changed? Why don't I feel the joy of the Lord? Why, why is my prayer life dry as last year's corn shucks? Have you obeyed God? Or has the blessing and anointing been ripped away? You see, I, I, I try to get in the thinking process of Saul. What is he thinking? Well, he's the king, right? The highest man in the land. And I assume that he's thinking at this point, well, the rules don't apply to me. I've got the anointing of God. I've got the blessing of God. I'm the one that the people wanted. So I can do it my way. The rules don't apply to me. And how foolish are we when we think that same way? Oh, I'm saved. I've got my hell insurance. I know I'm good with God. And yet we think I don't have to obey. 
I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to give. I don't have to serve. I can just uh, live the Christian life and put God in second place. No, sir, you can't. Not, not in be obedient to the Word of the Lord. You see, the Bible says this, His commands are not burdensome. The Bible says this, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How do you need to do that today? Is there a portion of your life that you haven't yet surrendered over to the Lord? Do you need to end a relationship? An ungodly relationship that is disobedient and sinful and you need to cut it off and God's told you time and time again and you've not obeyed? What are you waiting for? You need to start taking a devotional life seriously. You need to start sharing Christ intentionally. If you're not sharing Christ, you're not obeying Christ. You're not following the Great Commission. It's not optional. What about are you giving? Some people say, well, I, I don't give 10%, but I give my 5%. That's like saying, well, I only robbed five banks. You're still robbing God. You're still only being halfway obedient. Are you giving to God the way that He's told you to give by, in faith? Is there sin that you haven't dealt with in your life? And it's still hanging around and it peaks up every once in a while. It rears its ugly head and you haven't yet dealt with it. And you're playing the game of a fool. It's time to obey God. It's time to, to cut that out and to get it out of your life. You see, somebody said that the only commands of God that we truly believe are the ones in which we have obeyed. I know of a of a farmer who discovered the blessing of obedience in a way that he'll never forget. This farmer, he was going to sell some equipment. This is a true story, by the way. The farmer had been dishonest. And he was selling a piece of his farming equipment. It was a combine. And he was selling this equipment to another farmer. And so, to get a better price, to get more money... Out of this, he, he tampered with the hour meter. Those of you who work on farming machinery, you know it has an hour counter and it keeps track of how many hours of labor you've logged on that machine. And the less hours, that means the less it's been used and the better price that you can get, just like mileage on a car. So he tampered with that machine and he wound it backwards to make it show that it had less hours on it than what it really did. How many of you know that if you're... Truly a child of God, God won't let you sin and get away with it. The Holy Spirit will hound the death out of you. Well, this old farmer, he went to a revival meeting. And an old-fashioned preacher just, it let him have it. I mean, he got the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when he came down to the altar, he knew what he needed to do. He had been dishonest. He'd ripped off this other guy. And he had to make it right. And the Spirit of God told him, you better make this right or you're a hypocrite. So this farmer found out the true value of the combine. He went back to the man that he sold it to with the money in hand. He knocked on the door. He said, I'm sorry to tell you this. He said, but I was deceptive. I took advantage of you. Here's what I did. He explained it. And he said this, I recently gave my life to Jesus. He told me to come confess my sin to you. 
pay back what I owed. He said, I've got to be obedient. Here's $2,000. That's how much I shorted you. The other man, obviously, he was floored. I mean, what, what, put yourself in his shoes. What do you do? He began sobbing. He took that money. He looked at it, and he said, Sir, he said, you don't understand how important this is to me and my wife. He said, just a few days ago, we learned that my wife has been diagnosed with cancer. And the medical bills are going to be high. And we weren't sure how we were going to meet our mortgage this month. But now we know. He said, we've been praying that God would meet our need. And this is the exact amount that we would be short on our bills. Now imagine if that farmer would have not been obedient to the Lord. He would have missed out on a huge blessing. And that's the message that I want to get to you today. The urgency of obeying God completely and immediately. Saul didn't do it. And the kingdom was ripped from him. Saul only obeyed partially. And friend, listen to me. Partial obedience is still disobedience to God. And when it comes to obedience, today is God's word. Tomorrow is the devil's word. And don't let that obedience die in the valley of decision between today and tomorrow. Do it now. So number two, the folly of sinful disobedience. Number one, we see in the games that fools play, the failure of self-determination. And then I want you to see number three, the fraud of spiritual deception. The fraud of spiritual deception. We'll go to chapter 28 and notice with me. 1 Samuel chapter 28. Drop down to verse 8. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went and he had two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, Divine for me a spirit to bring up for me, whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you shall know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Paul's right there. What's going on? Saul's descent into the dark side continues. And now he's gotten to the point where he's being self-determined. He's being disobedient. And he's getting to the point in his life now where he's not seeking the will and the favor of God anymore. And he said, he says, I'm going to go to the witch of Endor, a sorceress, and seek for her from her counsel of what I might do next. That's what's going on here. Once again, the thing that drives Saul is fear because he's about to be tangled up in another lopsided battle with the Philistines. And you know, fear will drive us to do some crazy things, won't it? If you don't believe me, just let me take you back to 2020 and 2021. We did some pretty stupid and crazy things during all the COVID fear. Notice what's going on in, in Saul's life here. Samuel is dead. David is a fugitive. The spirit has departed. Saul has no prayer life. And now he resorts to the occult for advice on how he ought to proceed. 
And what's so damning about this scene is that the Bible tells us that seances and necromancy and astrology and occultic practices are repeatedly condemned by the Lord. In fact, when he goes to the witch of Endor, the Bible says he's in a disguise. And he tells her what he wants her to do. Bring up for me the spirit of Samuel so that I may talk with him. And she says to him, don't you know the edict of the king? If the king finds out about this, I'm going to be put to death. And she doesn't know who she's talking to. This is how far Saul has gone. Notice what happens. Verse 12. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. What a weird passage, by the way. Don't. Don't expect me to have all the answers on this. This is above my pay grade. I went to public school, y'all. Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Saul And then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by the prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Man, he's still sticking it to him. And the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul fell at once full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had not eaten anything all day and all night. My, my. This is the final and fatal straw. I told you that occultic practices were condemned by God. Saul knew this. Let me remind you what the word said in Leviticus 19 and verse 31, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers and do not sink them out. And so make for yourselves unclean by them, for I am the Lord your God. Pretty clear, huh? Leviticus 20 and verse 6, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them. I will cut them off from their people. Deuteronomy 18 Let no be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery or interprets omens or engages in witchcraft or casts spells or who is a medium or a spiritist or consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Saul, what are you doing, dude? He's gone off the deep end. Now, what about this scene? What are we to make of this? I mean, this is just weird. This is bizarre. The scene around the witch's crystal ball is is really one of the toughest in the Bible to interpret. There's a lot of ink spilled in the commentaries about what actually transpired here. And don't take my word for it, but here's my sanctified interpretation and opinion. 
Some people say that the witch is using her black magic to connect with a demon who is posing as Samuel. And certainly contacting demons and impersonating deceased spirits was probably the way that she ran her snake oil business. It's the way she duped people. But I think that the most likely interpretation of what's going on here is that God is performing a one-time miracle. He's allowing the spirit of Samuel to appear in order to rebuke Saul for his blatant disobedience. And it's important to notice the witch's reaction. When she recognizes Samuel, she lets out a ah, a blood-curdling scream. Which tells me that even she didn't expect to contact the spirit of Samuel. Right? And when Samuel does speak, he accurately predicts the future. He says, Saul, tomorrow's your death day. You're going to die. Your sons are going to die. That's a prophecy. And there's only one who can accurately predict the future. It's God Almighty. That's why I say this is a one-time miracle. What do we take from this? There's a couple of warnings here. First off, don't dabble in the occult. Don't play games with this foolishness, friend. Ouija, crystals, fortune telling, horoscopes, psychics, and yes, even some horror movies. You better be careful. What you're opening up and what you're allowing into your home and into your spirit. A Christian has no business dealing with these occultic things, these dark things, these bloody things. Why, how does light have fellowship with darkness, the Bible says? And if you think, oh, it's just innocent, Pastor. That's what the devil wants you to think. You're asking for trouble. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians eleven four. Even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's so slick, he's so smooth, he's so good at shape-shifting. And listen to me, a cult is a gateway into a world of darkness. And when you open that door, you don't know what's coming through the other side. You better not play that game. I've been to places, I've talked with people who I truly believe were demon-possessed. Trust me. It's way worse than the exorcist. It's way worse than what Hollywood can conjure up in some movie. Don't allow that into your home, into your life. And another thing about this, when you're out of the will of God, you'll go get advice from the devil. <laughs> How crazy is Saul? How crazy are we? Where we'll close our Bible... And stay away from the preacher and stay away from church and get advice from everybody else in the world about what we should do. How we should act, how we should think. When you're out of the will of God, you'll take the advice of the devil. By the way, in case you think, well, Pastor, my kids are growing up in a Christian home. They're okay. Let me warn you. They've got a gateway into a world called a smartphone. And I don't think your kids need one because a lot of kids can't handle that. Here's what's happening on social media right now through the phone. 
Millennials and Gen Zers are showing a growing interest in the occult. Do you know that? This is from CNN. I mean, the fake news capital of the world. But they reported this. Occult gurus produce viral TikTok and YouTube videos that teach their viewers how to read tarot cards, cast spells, use crystals, and perform psychic rituals. Witch talk is what it's called. It's a fascination with astrology and the occult. And young people are getting that through the phone. And when you're deceived and when you're in darkness, you'll believe anything. One influencer who makes these videos explain the allure of the occult this way, quote, because it gives people a direct connection to spiritual power. The whole allure of the occult and the darkness is we want to be in control. We want to be our own God rather than surrender to the God of the universe. The second thing that I notice is that there is an invisible line that you can cross on one side is grace, on the other side is judgment. And you can cross that line and not know that you've crossed it. Saul crossed that line and he found out he had gone too far. In fact, John Phillips, he says this, quote, Saul had locked and bolted the door to heaven and instead knocked on the door of hell. And God opened that door and let Saul fall through it. Just so, God will knock on the heart's door of the sinner. And when they have rejected Christ for the last time, He will stop wooing. And when the summons for eternity comes, they discover that hell's gates are locked from the inside. Was Saul saved? I don't know. You look at the record of his life, it's one big question mark. The fourth thing that he did. The last game... That fools play. Number four, the fate of self-destruction. The fate of self-destruction. Go quickly to chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. And when the Philistines took Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, this is David's, or excuse me, Saul's son, Jonathan, and Abinadab and Malkua, the sons of Saul, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on that same day together. And when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley, those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. So the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now listen to this. How tragic. So they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent the messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and fastened his body on the wall of Beth Shan. My God. What an ignominious death. 
By my count, there are five instances of suicide in the Bible. Samson, Ethniophel, Zimri, Judas, and Saul and his armor bearers here. Not only does Saul die shamefully and ignominiously and tragically, but he takes his sons down with him. Which is a sobering reminder. You don't know how far the consequences of your own sin will reach out and touch other people. Saul lost it all in one day. And after his death, the Bible says that the body of Saul was desecrated by the enemies of Israel. His head, listen to this, they said that they cut his head off and sent it from city to city. And they had parties and they had parades. Oh, the king is dead. We've won. We've beaten their God. That's what happens to a a preacher when they fall. That's what happens to a deacon when they fall. That's what happens when a child of God gets outside the will of God. And you know what happens to your testimony? It's paraded all throughout the community. I knew he didn't follow Jesus. Ain't nothing special about him. He's just as wicked as you and me. And you see, when you sin like Saul and your testimony is destroyed, the world's going to have a party. And so we ought to be careful about playing this game of fools. Far be it from me, far be it from you, that our name of Jesus, that the most precious name, that the name of this church, that the name of your God and Savior would be trod underfoot and dragged through the mud because of sinful disobedience. Look at the damage that Saul did to the name of God and the kingdom of God. One writer said it like this, quote, The headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, were silhouetted against the moonlit night, and they swung in the wind on the walls of Bashan amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. No funeral. No potato salad at the fellowship hall to celebrate the legacy of a life well lived. No eulogies. He died scorn and this is what happens to the Christian when sin destroys their life sin will take you further than you wanted to go keep you longer than you wanted to stay teach you more than you wanted to know and cost you more than you wanted to pay you say preacher you should have just preached a Christmas message (laughs) I wish I could have But God wouldn't let me get away from this. You say, preacher, what's the silver lining in all this? There is one. You know, there's always hope in the Word of God. Here's a major takeaway. I read this story and I think, man, Israel needs a better king. Amen? Israel needs a king who's not disobedient. Israel needs a king who does the will of God, a man of integrity, a man who doesn't give in to temptation and isn't so weak. Israel needs a better king. And praise God, there would be one. His name would be Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who would one day come. This whole book of 1 Samuel is about a search for a king. They're trying to find a king. And there isn't a good one found. 
Even David failed. But there would be one who would come named Jesus Christ. He would never disobey his father. He would never give in to sin. He would never fall on his face. He would never take the name of his father and run it through the mud. He always did what was right. He's the king. You wouldn't think there would be much in common between Saul and Jesus. But let me show you something. Connection here. The disappointment of Saul is meant to point us to the greatness of Christ. Notice this. Saul's death appeared to be the end of all national hope. Just like the death of Jesus appeared to his disciples to be the end of their messianic hope. Read Luke 24. The Emmaus Road walking along. Saul's death appeared to the enemy that they had won a final victory. Just like the death of Jesus seemed to be Satan's crowning achievement. Oh, the glee and the joy in hell among Satan and his minions when Jesus died. They thought they had won. Saul's death shows the folly of sin as he's hung in shame. Jesus' death, he becomes our sin. He hangs for our shame so that we might be forgiven. Saul's death paved a way for a new king, David, and a new plan of operation. And Jesus died a criminal, but he arose a conquering king over death and the devil. And because of him, it ushered in a new era called grace and mercy. And God says, I don't care how bad you've messed up, how addicted you are, how broken your life is, how much you've ran from me and disobeyed me, you come to the cross and we'll get it right. In every way that Saul failed, Jesus succeeded. He's the real king that our hearts long for. I started by talking to you about Elvis. There's an interesting scene from Elvis's life that touches on the kingship of Christ. Here's the story. The story goes that Elvis was performing his final Las Vegas shows in the 1970s. During the show, a woman approached the stage carrying a pillow. And on the pillow was a crown. She said, Elvis, it's for you. You're the king. Elvis took her by the hand, smiled, and he said this. No, honey. There's only one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Listen to my music, but worship Him. Friend, there's only one King. Do you know Him? Have you surrendered your heart and life to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ? Our musicians are coming. As we come to this time of invitation, I wonder, has God been dealing with somebody today? Have you been playing the game of a fool? You can stop today. And you can get a new start and a second chance but you have to come to Jesus and you have to cast your crown you have to relinquish control of your life to him and say Lord you're the king not me anymore